place this morning as we worship in the name of your son Jesus Christ thank you that you are present and your spirit is among us thank you that your love knows no boundary it forgives and forgives and forgives thank you that we can come this morning to worship as your people in this place that we are free in our spirit and in our body to be here we are not bound by some kind of persecution that happens in many parts of the world. We're not standing here in fear of our lives being taken this morning. We thank you for that because we love you. We understand by your word that you loved us first and unconditionally, and you want us to be that way. We thank you for a love like that. May we example it to others. Help us to walk in a way that shows that we have a desire to be like you. Forgive us when we fall. Restore us move us forward. We thank you for giving yourself that we might learn to give. This morning as we bring an offering into this place, may it be your hand that guides our hearts. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning. We're back in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there. By way of review... Paul began this book by stating that God has already blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he proceeds to spell out those blessings. Through the first half of chapter 1, he mentions what God has already done for us. He's already chosen us. He's already adopted us. He's already redeemed us. He's already forgiven us. He's already revealed himself to us, and he's already given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment, guaranteeing our future inheritance. Why 
Would God do that? Verse 4 of chapter 1 says he did it for one reason. Love. In his great love, it says, it drove him to it. And the last half of chapter 1 is devoted to Paul's prayer that we get hold of these blessings which God's love has made available to us. If we do grasp hold of them, we begin to experience the changed hearts and lives and futures that he states accompany those blessings. Do you realize how much God loves you? In chapter 2, Paul says that in spite of our being dead because of our transgressions and sins, in spite of our disobedience and lostness, God has already made us alive with Christ. He's raised us in newness of life. He seated us with him in glory. Why would God do that? In verse 4 of chapter 2, it says he did it in love. Because of his great love for us, it says, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And then it says that's grace. The rest of chapter 2 points out that he's already destroyed all the walls of separation and hostility, all the things that would keep us apart. Because these walls have been destroyed, he calls us to live out that new life, not in isolation, but in community. Because in spite of our individualism, it is the church which is central to God's plan. Together we are Christ's body, and faith was never intended to be lived in isolation. The church is not its programs and activities, its buildings or structure or organization. It's us together, people in relationship, for the scripture says we are his family. The unity of the church in the last half of chapter 2, the unity among us is the primary evidence of the life we have in Christ. Because his love is to bring us together, not just with God, but with one another. Do you really recognize how much God loves you? Chapter 2 began with the words, for this reason. Paul had a thought in mind, but before he completes that thought, he then takes a slight detour in the last half of chapter 2, sharing his own life experiences, his own attitudes, which enabled him to be faithful. Attitudes which we also must develop. Rather than push his freedom to do what he wants, Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Rather than talk about his rights, he speaks about his responsibilities as an administrator or steward of the things of God. And rather than express his desires and wishes, he says he's merely a servant of Christ. He remained faithful because he had nothing to prove and nothing but Christ to hold on to. He understood how much God loved him and rested secure in that knowledge. But now in chapter, this chapter, the section in chapter 3, he comes back to the thought that he intended as he resumes where he left off and says again, for this reason, beginning in verse 14, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Because of what God has already done, all that he had mentioned in the first two chapters, because of all this, Paul says, for this reason I kneel or I bow before the Father. The term he uses there shows his earnestness because in that day, prayer was primarily practiced standing. Kneeling and bowing reflected great humility and desire. It's no token or perfunctory prayer he's talking about, but he's saying, this is coming from the depths of my heart. Because he realized how much God loved them and now prayed that they too could, would begin to grasp it for themselves and begin to live out that love. You know, there a, was a man a few years back in England named Julian Morris, very wealthy. He had everything money could buy. But every day, he would dress up in old, worn-out clothes and look like a vagrant. And then he'd go door-to-door -door in different sections of the city selling razor blades or soap or shampoo, anything he could find. He had everything, but he lived like he had nothing during the day. At night, it was another story, because he would go home to his beautiful mansion, wash, put on formal clothes, and then have his chauffeur drive him to some exclusive restaurant in their limousine, or perhaps he might catch a flight to Paris or somewhere else for the night. Many times, if we're not careful, we as believers can live like that. We have all the glorious riches of God at our disposal, but because we don't understand the extent of how much God loves us, we live day by day in apparent spiritual poverty, and only on occasion do we enjoy the vast riches of our Father's blessings, blessings which the love of our Father has made available to us. So Paul prays that out of God's glorious riches, he might strengthen us with power. Power to know him and power, if you read this passage, to know the full extent of God's love. So that Paul says, Christ might begin to dwell in your hearts through faith. Literally, so he might make up his home within you. You know, we can ask Jesus to come into our lives to save us from our sin and our separation. But if we leaving him, leave him standing at the porch... We don't understand what he offers. That's the point of Robert Boyd Munger's little booklet from several years back called My Heart's Christ's Home, where he pictures our lives as a house with all these different rooms in it, bedrooms and kitchen and closets, and each one represents a different part of your life. He says many of us will invite him in through the front door that we keep him closed out of our bedrooms or our living room or our closets. We have all these areas of our house which we want to keep Christ away from. Imagine living in a house and not being able to go into the kitchen or go into the bedroom or to look in the closet. Yet isn't that sometimes what we do with Christ? We ask him into our hearts. He saves us, but then we tell him, well, stay out of my finances. That's none of your business. Don't try to tell me how to use my time or my talents. It's what I want to do. But out of what I watch or what I do for fun or my relationships. 
or how I treat someone. Paul's prayer is for you to have the spiritual power to open every door of your life, every room and compartment, to allow Christ to take up residence there. That Christ may dwell in our hearts, may make his home in us, because it's the heart that's the center of our affection, of our love. So is it any wonder that the main thrust of Paul's prayer is for believers, for us to begin to grasp the extent of God's love? Do you realize how much he loves you? That's the point of Paul's prayer, that we realize it. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer wrote, Love is not something God has and which can grow or diminish or cease to be. Love is the way he is, and so when God loves, he's simply being himself. Then, In addition to praying for power to allow Christ to take up residence in our hearts, Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established or grounded in that love, The New Living Translation says that your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. Roots are where we draw our nourishment and our health. A prayer for love, God's love, to take root in our lives. Become a foundation upon which to build them. Then he says, I pray also that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, the saints, to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. A prayer for understanding, for them to comprehend, to perceive how much God loves them. And then he prays again, and he prays that we might know or might experience firsthand this love that surpasses knowledge. It's not love just written about in a book. It's love to be experienced. It's one thing to read about it or to hear people talk about love or to write about it, but quite another to actually experience it firsthand. And that's what he's praying for. So that, he says, we might be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. A deepening love. Do you realize how much God loves you? When Marilyn Monroe was at the height of her popularity, millions of adoring fans, there was a freelance reporter at the New York Times who had the opportunity to interview her. He knew about her past, that she grew up in foster care, shuffled from one home to another her whole life. And in the course of this interview, he asked her, did you ever feel loved by any one of the families with whom you lived? She thought for a moment and then said, Once, when I was seven years old, the woman I was living with was putting on makeup, and I was watching her. She was in a happy mood, and she reached over and she patted my cheek. For that brief moment, I felt loved. How sad not to know that you're loved. And yet John, 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. That's the way he is. He told his people in Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And the scriptures are filled with examples and illustrations of how much God loves you. He is the great physician of Mark 1, 41 and 42, filled with compassion when he sees a leper and he does what was inconceivable for that day. He reached out his hand and he touched the untouchable. 
And he continues to do that. God's love touches the outcast and the rejected. He himself, Scripture says, was despised and rejected by man. And he knows every rotten thing you've ever done, every impure thought and word you've ever had. You cannot hide a single thing from him. And he still says, I love you with an everlasting love. In fact, there's nothing you can ever do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can ever do to make God love you less. That is how much he loves us. He's also the wounded healer of Isaiah 53, beaten and rejected by men so that by his stripes we might be healed. Loved so much that he would endure the cross for us. He's the good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for the sheep. Do you recognize how great that love is? These are pictures describing it. He's the love of a father in Luke 15, whose youngest son was wild and rebellious, who wants nothing more to do with his family, takes his inheritance, all his belongings, and leaves home with no thought of ever returning. Perhaps only a parent can fully grasp the depth of pain caused by a child who rebels, who rejects and turns away and the suffering that that can cause. Yet here is a picture of God as the father watching down the road, longing for the day his son would return, grasping the love of a father. And when he sees him coming home, he doesn't wait. He gets up and runs to meet him. The only place in scripture where God ran. How much does God love us? He loves us like that father, though rejected, runs to meet us who stands not to judge, but to welcome. As one writer described this, no other religion pictures its deity like this. No other faith can claim a God who zealously pursues his children. All other deities are distant and elusive, demanding that their disciples come to them, usually on a long and arduous path, often with arbitrary rituals of appeasement, but not the father that Jesus portrays. He's a God who runs after his children. Never mind the child's past. All his rebellious arrogance is no longer an issue. Neither are the rags and the older he's wearing when he returns. The return is all that matters, and the father enthusiastically runs to his child and escorts him into the household. That's a picture of how much God loves you. He's the love of a husband, as pictured in the prophet Hosea, a husband whose love transcends the wife's unfaithfulness. If you remember the story of Hosea, the prophet's told to be a parable of God's love for his people. Go, God tells him, and marry Gomer, a prostitute, even though he knew she would break his heart. And after he does, she turns back to her old way of life. And in an act of love, Hosea is told to go and redeem her and buy her back as your wife. God says, that describes my love for my people. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we've wandered, he redeems us. How many times have we turned away and rejected the love of God in our own lives? How many times have we strayed wandering to other things. And yet God knows more than that. He knew before we were ever born what we would do, and yet he loves and redeems us. God is that loving husband. Jesus is the bridegroom who buys us back from captivity. 
You know, we read the words, for God so loved the world that he gave. But do we recognize and realize the full extent of that love and what's involved with it? Because greatest of all the pictures of God's love in scriptures are found in all four of the gospel. It is, of course, a picture of Calvary and the cross. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, said, for a definition of love, don't look in a dictionary, look at Calvary. God's love is Jesus despised and rejected by the very ones he came to save, the ones he loved. God's love endured betrayal at the hands of his closest friends. God's love endured the scourging to the point where his skin was torn from his back. It endured the spikes driven through his hands and his feet and being hung on a piece of wood, fighting for every breath while people looked on and mocked him. And yet... It endured and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing the worst life had to offer. And yet willing to suffer the greatest of indignities because of his love for you. He took it upon himself because of love, the scripture says. Billy Graham said, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God's way of saying to the world, I love you. Paul Put it like this, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And he also said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and set his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you realize how much God loves you? A writer said, And I'm going to close with this. God, I have a question. Why do you love your children? I don't want to sound irreverent, but only heaven knows how much pain we've brought you. Who or why do you tolerate us? You give us every breath we breathe, but do we thank you? You give us bodies beyond duplication, but do we praise you? Seldom. We complain about the weather. We bicker about our toys. We argue over who gets which continent and who has the best gender. Not a second passes when someone somewhere doesn't use your name to curse a hammered thumb or a bad call by an umpire as if it were your fault. You fill the world with food, but we blame you for hunger. You keep the earth from tilting and the arctics from thawing, but we accuse you of unconcern. You give us blue skies and we demand rain. You give us rain and we demand sun as if we knew what was best anyway. We give more applause to a brawny ball carrier than we do to the God who made us. We sing more songs to the moon than to the Christ who saved us. We are a gnat on the tail of one elephant in a galaxy of Africa's, and yet we demand that you find us a parking place when we ask. And if you don't give us what we want, we say you don't exist, as if our opinion mattered. We pollute the world you loan us, you mistreat the bodies you gave us, we ignore the word you sent us, and we killed the son you became. We are spoiled babies who take and kick and pout and blaspheme. You have every reason to abandon us. I sure would. I would wash my hands of the whole mess and start over on Mars, but do you? I see the answer in the rising sun. I hear the answer in the crashing of the waves. I feel the answer in the skin of a child. Father, your love never ceases, never. Though we spurn you, ignore you, disobey you, you will not change. Our evil cannot diminish your love. Our goodness cannot increase it. 
Our faith does not earn it any more than our stupidity jeopardizes it. You don't love us less if we fail, and you don't love us more if we succeed. Your love never ceases. How do we explain it? Perhaps the answer is found in yet another question. Moms, why do you love your newborn? I know, I know, it's a silly question, but indulge me. Why do you? For months, this baby has brought you pain. She or he made you break out in pimples and waddle like a duck. Because of her, you craved sardines and crackers and threw up in the morning. She punched you in the tummy. She occupied space that wasn't hers and ate foods she didn't fix. You kept her warm. You kept her safe. You kept her fed. But did she say thank you? Are you kidding? She's no more out of the womb than she starts to cry. The room is too cold, the blanket's too rough, the nurse is too mean, and who does she want? Mom. Do you ever get a break? I mean, who's been doing the work for the last nine months? Why can't dad take over? But no, dad won't do. It's baby wants mom. She didn't even tell you she was coming. She just came, and what a coming. She rendered you a barbarian. You screamed, you swore, you bit bullets and tore the sheets, and now look at you. Your back aches, your head pounds, your body is drenched in sweat, every muscle strained and stretched. You should be angry, but are you? Far from it. On your face is a long, for longer than forever love. She's done nothing for you, yet you love her. She's brought pain to your body and nausea to your mourning, yet you treasure her. Her face is wrinkled and her eyes are dim, yet all you can talk about are her good looks and bright future. She's going to wake you up every night for the next six weeks, but that doesn't matter. I can see it in your face. You're crazy about her. Why? Why does a mother love her newborn? Because the baby is hers? Even more, because the baby is her, her blood, her flesh, her sinew inspired, her hope her legacy. It bothers her not that the baby gives nothing. She knows a newborn is helpless, weak. She knows babies don't ask to come into this world. And God knows we don't either. We are his idea. We are his, his face, his eyes, his hands, his touch. We are him. We are incredibly the body of Christ. And though we may not act like our father, there's no greater truth than this. We are his unalterably. He loves us undyingly. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Had God not said those words, I would be a fool to write them. But since he did, I'm a fool not to believe them. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But how difficult it is for some to embrace that truth. You think you've committed an act that places you outside his love, a treason, a betrayal, an aborted promise. You think he would love you more if you hadn't done it, right? You think he would love you more if you did more, right? You think if you were better, his love would be deeper, right? Wrong, wrong, wrong. God's love is not human. His love is not normal. His love sees your sin and loves you still. Does he approve of your error? No. Do you need to repent? Yes. But do you repent for his sake or yours? For yours. His ego needs no apology. His love needs no bolstering. And he could not love you more than he does right now. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father, as we come to close this time of worship, it's a time we pray that we will recognize how great the love the Father has for us, that we should be called children, children of God. For that is what we are through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for that love that is undying and unceasing, 
a love that does not let us go, that embraces and welcomes, a love that is unfathomable to our human standards, and yet it is so deep and so rich. I pray that each one here, God, will realize that love for themselves, not to read about it or hear about it, but to know it from the depths of their heart. And in return, may we love you, Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our time of invitation, it's an invitation if you would like to receive the love of the Father into your own heart and have not done so, I'd love to pray with you here at the front or perhaps after the service. Or if you know that love and it's time to take the next step, whether to unite with us as a church, a family serving Christ, or to be baptized or to make some commitment, we invite you to come to the front as we stand together and sing. Would you all please stand? Just as I drive us away, but like that good shepherd, you welcome us and watch over us. We thank you, God, for that assurance that we have, for your great love, which surpasses understanding. Thank you, God. Amen.